Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. If you develop a disease that affects your arteries or veins, you may require care from a vascular surgeon. Here with me to talk about this surgical subspecialty is Dr. Palma Shaw. She's a professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in vascular surgery, and she'll be the president of the International Society of Endovascular Specialists in 2023. Welcome back to The Informed Patient, Dr. Shaw. Thank you so much, Amber. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Now, do I understand correctly that vascular surgeons like yourself may treat a fair number of patients who don't require surgery? That is true. Not everybody that we see requires a surgical intervention. Oftentimes, we're there to help diagnose the problem, offer them some counseling, and help them modify either their behavior or maybe some of their medications first. And then if that doesn't work, then we can talk about more invasive options. Let's talk about some of the common problems that patients come to you with. Peripheral artery disease, that's one of them. What is peripheral artery disease and how is it handled typically? Peripheral arterial disease is generally a narrowing of an artery. We sometimes call it a blockage. It may be partially blocked, maybe 50% blocked, or it could be 100% blocked. And it could be a long blockage or a short blockage in the arteries that go from the groin all the way down to the foot. Patients at most risk would be those who smoke. Additionally, patients with diabetes are also at higher risk, particularly for blockages in the calf. Patients who present with peripheral arterial disease may also have other problems in their heart or in their carotid arteries in their neck. So we have to be aware that those patients have other risk factors. And oftentimes those risk factors are modified through medications to try to address their blood pressure and their cholesterol. In addition to that, we then evaluate the patients and try to determine where these blockages in the arteries may be that are causing the problems that may make them either walk or be unable to walk or develop pain in their foot or an inability to heal a wound over a period of time. When someone is suspected of having an abdominal aortic aneurysm, is that something that where they would be referred to a vascular surgeon? Yes, that is true. They are often referred to us either from their primary care doctor or their cardiologist, and sometimes even the urologist who may have done a screening ultrasound or an ultrasound to evaluate a different problem, and then an aneurysm is seen. Additionally, Medicare, for any male that ever smoked cigarettes over the age of 60, can have a screening abdominal ultrasound to try to see if this is present. Oftentimes, these are asymptomatic, and when they become large, they are a threat to life for that patient. Now, how do you describe aneurysms for patients? Because I'm not sure everyone understands what an abdominal aortic aneurysm is. The aorta is a tube that comes off of the heart and the chest and looks like a candy cane actually coming off and then running down the back in the abdomen behind the stomach. And when this becomes enlarged, it may look like a circular enlargement, maybe one or two times the normal size of the artery. And when it reaches a large size, such as five centimeters, we start discussing repair options with the patient. How common is carotid artery disease? Carotid artery disease is fairly common 
although we don't see good yield with screening ultrasounds. So we don't look for that disease unless we hear a noise when we listen to the neck or if the patient were to have a symptom. But generally, when we do detect that, if we hear a noise or if the patient has any symptom, if they have dizziness or weakness or numbness, for example, we may get a carotid ultrasound because one-fifth of all strokes are related to blockages in the carotid arteries that are in the neck. So that's where plaque builds up in the bloodstream? Yes. I tell patients sometimes it's like if you had your driveway and you had it repaved, it has an extra layer on it. And if you've ever been on the road in New Hampshire and seen a frost heave, it's sort of a billowing up of the road. Well, the plaque can rupture, almost like volcano appearance, and then a little bit of debris can break loose and then go to the brain. And that's when they become symptomatic and a stroke can occur. Do you care for a lot of people with what's called chronic venous insufficiency? Over 10 million Americans have chronic venous insufficiency. It's an extremely common problem. It's certainly not life-threatening, but it is very much a nuisance for a lot of patients. Many of them may feel fatigue in their legs. They may have bulging veins. They may be sore. They eventually may even develop ulcers and wounds on their inner calf that generally results in long-term problems and repeated visits to see the doctor. And those things can affect your work and your day-to-day life. Is chronic venous insufficiency related to varicose veins? Yes, oftentimes varicose veins are actually one description of the venous insufficiency. It depends where the diseased vein is. So chronic venous insufficiency can be in the deep system or the superficial system. And I tell patients it's as if you had a ladder and there's two sides to the ladder and one would be the deep, which is closer to the bone in the leg. And then there's the superficial. And those two rungs of the ladder have the bars in between and you can walk up the ladder. Well, that's just like the valves that are in the venous system. And if you go to step on one rung, and it breaks through, that's a broken valve in the vein. So as you walk and you pump the blood up, back up towards your heart and the muscles contract, and then as the gravity pulls the blood back, if the valve is broken, that blood will go down to the next functional valve. And if all the valves are broken in the leg, they're crashing down at the ankle level, and that's why you get swelling down in the So it sounds like varicose veins, it's not just a cosmetic thing, it's actually a medical issue. It is. There are patients who do have prominent varicose veins that truly have no symptoms and for the most part just don't like how they look. For example, patients may have those tiny little spider veins. We also call them reticular veins. And those little spiders that patients don't like the appearance of are cosmetic. They're not covered by most insurances, but patients may perceive that they're giving them discomfort, particularly if there's a large cluster of spider veins in a specific area of their leg, and they may benefit from use of compression stockings. Now, regarding diabetic foot care, why might a vascular surgeon be involved? Patients with diabetes should pay a lot of attention to their foot care. They often can develop neuropathy, which is disease in the nerves of their foot. And when that happens, they can have sensory or loss of feeling or pain, actually. They can have changes in the distribution of of the muscles impacting the bones in their foot so they get deformity, so they don't have the normal composition of the foot, and it may wear incorrectly in a shoe. So they may need special shoes that accommodate the problems of the foot. 
And they also have autonomic problems, which is another component. And that means that they don't have good function of the sweat glands. So they get a lot of callus and dry skin. So the combination of dry skin, which can crack, extra pressure on specific bones in the foot, and then loss of sensation put those patients at risk of wounds. And not a little wound, but a wound that may actually go all the way down to the bone and put them at risk of losing their foot and bad infections, depending upon how well the diabetes is controlled. So it's really important that they have a good podiatrist and they follow with that podiatrist routinely who's skilled at identifying the changes that keep them out of trouble. The patients also may develop vascular disease, particularly below the knee, in the little vessels called the tibial vessels. There are three. And the diabetics who smoke are at the highest risk of limb loss. We say every 20 minutes, a limb is lost in a diabetic in a non-traumatic way. And this is usually related to blockages in the arteries. And those people who smoke will have blockages above the knee more often. And then the diabetics will have blockages below the knee. So it's really a double whammy and it's a huge problem for them. And we try to counsel the patients. So once the podiatrist or somebody detects that there's a decreased pulsation of the pulse in the foot, that they can't feel the pulse, the patient should see a vascular surgeon so we can evaluate the patient so that we can keep them out of trouble or potentially have to revascularize them and bring better blood supply to the foot so the wound that has developed can heal. Otherwise, they could lose their foot. You helped organize a conference at Upstate recently teaching about limb preservation. Does that tie into the diabetic foot care? Absolutely, Amber. I recognized a few years ago while I was doing my Master's of Business Administration that we needed to develop a limb preservation program at SUNY Upstate Medical University. No one else in this region has a limb preservation group, and we have everything we need. We have an outstanding wound care group. We have diabetology. We have podiatry. We have all the endovascular and vascular specialists that we need. We just needed to bring this together so that we could benefit our local community as well as the surrounding regional hospitals that need care. So we just held our first Limb Preservation Symposium, which was really successful, and we decided to do it hybrid so that it could reach as far as Albany or as south as Ithaca if people couldn't come. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Palma Shaw. She's a professor of surgery at Upstate specializing in vascular surgery and she was elected to be president of the International Society of Endovascular Specialists starting in 2023. We've been talking about her role as a vascular surgeon, but now we're going to talk to Dr. Shaw about a podcast she's been co-hosting. I understand you have a podcast with another vascular surgeon from Houston called Sisterhood in Surgery. Can you tell us about it? Sure, Amber, I'm really happy to do that. This was actually the idea of one of my colleagues who was the original president of the ISEVS or the International Society of Endovascular Specialists, Dr. Alan Lumsden, who's the chief of cardiovascular surgery at Houston Methodist Hospital. And his partner, Linda Lay, and I have started this webinar, which we hold monthly, 10 months of the year. We started in March of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything pivoted to virtual Initially, he came up with this idea and we thought, well, let's talk about issues that are interesting to female surgeons. So one issue is being pregnant and being a female surgeon. So we did a, an episode on that. And then we did one on radiation exposure and being a female vascular surgeon, because in our job, oftentimes we work with radiation and we have to wear lead. 
And we have done over 30 different webinars on a variety of topics, some of which are vascular or medical related, and some are not. For example, the one last week was on self-care mind and body, and we had a yoga instructor and a mindfulness advisor, and we had a really good time with that webinar. And then next month, we're doing one with a company called Verify uh, that Dr. Randy Green has started, trying to help physicians estimate their value and what is our worth. And there's going to be a collaborative effort with one of the big societies in vascular surgery. And so we're going to have them on the show to talk about how vascular surgeons can be more valued for what we do. So this is something also important to vascular surgeons. It's not exactly medically related, but it's important to our careers. So it sounds like you get your story ideas or your episode ideas based on things that are important in your life. A lot of the shows are all my life. So I'm a single mother. So we did one on single mothers. A lot of women have problems with fertility. I didn't, but a lot of women did. So we did one on fertility. I had a fertility specialist. Another one was on women who had challenging pregnancies and complications of pregnancy. And we reached out to different female surgeons and they were able to talk about what their experiences were. And it was remarkable how that sharing of your experience helps other younger female surgeons feel like they're not alone and they feel embiggered by uh, the sense of a community of women in surgery. Do you rehearse before you record the podcast? So we do a run of the show. We come up with the idea. We find the guests. Linda and I are the co-hosts. I zoom in. Linda's in the studio. And then the week before, we put down some ideas. We send them to our guests and say, feel free to add whatever you want. And then we send that out to all of them. And we just sort of run through the questions. It's really informal. We feel like it's our version of the view. And I want to say, you know, we did one called Generations of Female Surgeons. And I had Pat Newman, who is emeritus here at SUNY Upstate and founder of Women in Surgery. And I had Leslie Coleman, who is our wellness executive here at Upstate and a thoracic surgeon. And she is the founder of Women in Thoracic Surgery. So we had five different generations of women in surgery on the show. So we do a lot of fun things. Do you think most of your listeners are women surgeons? I think some men do listen, and I do actually share the links with the medical students. So our vascular surgery interest group, some men and, uh, and some women also join in because, for example, we don't always have women's topics. So I did one on how to become an editor of the journal vascular surgery because people say it's a male-dominated field. They don't have enough women that are editors of the journal vascular surgery. But I felt bad for the editors that I'm actually friends with. So I said, let's bring them on the show. Let them talk about the women that they have promoted. Let them talk about how women can get more engaged or anybody can get engaged to become. And now I just became an editor of the Journal of Vascular Surgery. So I'm practicing what I preach, so to speak. Do you think circumstances have changed for women in surgery since you got out of medical school? Most certainly. I think we have a way to go, but I personally can say that I've been incredibly blessed, particularly in the last several years, with numerous uh, leadership roles. I started the women's section with an, a colleague, Audra Duncan, and two other women for the Society for Vascular Surgery. We just started that early this year. And I have a big role at the Society for Vascular Surgery right now and many other societies. And I feel like I've been given opportunities that I never thought I would ever have had. And I know we have more to go. And there are some women who still feel like things aren't entirely perfectly fair. But how fast can you actually change things? I think it's like turning around the Titanic. I mean, you can only move so fast, right? But as long as you're making progress and be positive, 
which I think is really, really important. You know, Amber, Linda and I make a strong effort on the show to always keep things very positive. There's just no point in getting deviated to anything negative. We try to look towards the future in a positive way. So I think that women in surgery need to still struggle with certain things. I get that, but men struggle too, but we have to be positive and support each other because the era where women did not support women, and that was not so long ago. When I graduated, there were women who didn't support me, but I was fortunate to meet Pat Newman and Leslie Coleman, and they supported me. And now I think most women feel like you have to support other women. It's unacceptable not to. Well, Dr. Shaw, thank you for making time for this interview. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Palma Shaw, a professor of surgery at Upstate who specializes in vascular surgery and the incoming president of the International Society of Endovascular Specialists. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.